Hello friends, and uh, Psalm 130, Psalm 130, it's well known that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But our world keeps on thinking that if you grow in knowledge and the certainty of understanding, you will get wisdom. And the problem is, we have had communally for a couple of centuries now, growing lack of certainty about God and an accompanying loss of intellectual certainty. It's finally eaten through all the way to our, our whole culture so that we have an intellectual lack of certainty about words and about knowledge itself. But when you know God, the God that has created the world and created humanity in his own image, he who oz the word, then we have confidence in human knowledge. And words are not just simply gibberish. But when you don't know God, when you don't know that there even is a creator, when you don't know that humanity was made in God's image, then you lose confidence. You lose confidence in humanity, in humanity's capacity to know anything or to speak meaningfully. And such we see in what is called postmodernism, in deconstructionism, in the modern epistemological nihilism. Lovely big words, don't worry if you don't know what they mean, because they basically mean that there's no meaning. Take an atheist philosopher like the New York professor Thomas Nagel. He's as clever and as educated as they come, and he's written a short history of philosophy called What Does It All Mean? Now here is a senior academic from the senior universities in North America. But he can't accept that life is meaningless because he says, look at us, look how rational and moral we are. It can't be meaningless. But he's an atheist and so without God he really can't explain the point of life or the meaning of life. And so he concludes in his book with the question, what's the point of being alive at all? And he declares, there's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all, or if I didn't care about anything. But I do. That's all there is to it. And he declares, as he goes on, If life is not real, <coughs> life is not earnest, and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, Perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. And he concludes his book with a fairly famous quote, Life may be not only meaningless, but absurd. There is the end point of a great academic's life study of philosophy based on atheism. However, as we look at Psalm 113, we will see that our problem is not intellectual. It's not a problem of the mind, rather a problem of the spirit, rather a problem of morality. Our problem is personal and relational. Let's quickly look at the psalm itself. It commences with a cry in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy at different times, phases, experiences of life, we can relate to the cry of the psalmist. We can relate to the heartfelt anguish and hopelessness, the lostness, the sense of being 
overwhelmed by life's disappointments, by its defeats, by its illness, by its failure to treat us justly. It's like when you're being pulled down in the water and rolled over by the waves of the surf, unable to come up for air. When you face the loss of a loved one or when your family splits in divorce, at such times there is this cry that comes from within you out to God, to Yahweh the God of Israel, the creator of all the world, the cry to be heard, the cry to be listened to, the cry for mercy. Now while the psalm commences with the cry, it quickly turns to theology in verses 3 and 4, which lies right at the heart of this psalm. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Two great statements that could stand alone. And when you come to great statements in the Bible that can stand alone, good to mark them because they're good memory verses. A memory verse must make some, say something significant, but it must say something that's true in its context as it would be if you didn't have a context. And you don't need the context for those two statements to stand. So they're ideal memory verses really. Statement one is in verse three. It's about sin and judgment. It's about all of humanity standing before God, or rather not being able to stand before God. For all humans sin, and with the Lord there is absolute justice. If God were to mark iniquities, if he were to watch over us for our sins, if he was on the lookout, the lookout for our sins, then no one could stand before him. No one could stand before him in his court. In his justice, in his presence, no one could stand, for all of us are guilty, all of us fail. Here, of course, is the great problem for us, for facing failure is very difficult for humans, especially facing moral failure, especially facing our own moral failure. Especially when we're in the depths and we don't know the way out and we want to call to God and we're conscious that we don't deserve to be helped by him. Even when we know deep down that we are to blame, we have this terrific tendency not to blame ourselves, to find some way out of our fault, to, to blame, well, I couldn't help it, I was sick at the time, or the circumstances were against me, or my, my parents, they, they, my mother weaned me too fast. There's some explanation for my behaviour that excuses me from the decisions that I have made. Or that we deny that we did it. And we move on into the hypocrisy of the moralist saying, well, I did, but it's not really sin, uh, and not that we're really guilty, and if it was, we would never do such a thing. Or we change the definition of sin, we alter morality, we, we move about the absolute values to relative kind of values. And instead of the hypocrisy of the moralist, we adopt the shamelessness of the degenerate. But notice the second great theological statement, it's verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Here's the great Old Testament characteristic of Yahweh. He keeps being, we keep being taught in the Old Testament that mercy, pardon, graciousness, loving nature of God. That is what makes it possible for people to face, not just God, 
but to face our own sinfulness, to face our own iniquities, to face our own moral failures honestly, with, with the knowledge of hope, with the possibility of forgiveness, you can face the truth differently. The, the, the strict, unforgiving parent will never have their child come and confess to them of their sins or their errors but will produce lying, denying, sneaky hypocrites or rebellious and shameless family disgraces. If they know that any confession is going to be met with massive punishment, the temptation to tell lies is overwhelming. But verse 4 doesn't work without verse 3. Forgiveness and mercy without any wrongdoing or justice, is just meaningless sentimentality. Forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. They're different. If everything is forgiven, if everything is acceptable, then nothing matters. There is no justice. In fact, there's no right or wrong. And if there's no right or wrong, there's nothing to forgive. There is no mercy. It's just a kind of amoral acceptance of immorality. Without God watching sin, no one would stand, but with God is forgiveness and mercy. Here's the importance of the cross. God doesn't forgive sin by ignoring it, by pretending it didn't happen, by sweeping it under the carpet. God forgives sin by paying for sin in the sacrifice of his one and only Son for our sins, thus upholding justice while extending mercy, the two going together. But did you notice the second half of verse 4? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It almost seems to be misplaced. If I was writing the psalm, and I suspect if we were writing the psalm, we'd write it differently. I mean, this is the way it appears in the Bible. I've put it on the screen to show you the variation here. We've got in our Bibles, If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But the way I would have written it, and I suspect most of us would have written it, is... If you, O Lord, would mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand that you may be feared? But with you there is forgiveness. We fear the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the anger of God, the punishment of God. But that's not what the psalmist is saying. You see, we fear the judgment. It's the judge in judgment we fear. It's our guilt that drives us to the fear of being caught. But the psalmist is saying something completely different. He's saying the other way around, that God forgives that we may fear him. It's the other way around altogether, isn't it? It goes beyond the fear of judgment or the fear of punishment. It's because of forgiveness creating restoration of relationship so that we actually know him and if you know him you truly fear him 
The fear of the Lord comes from forgiveness and mercy. It's not the fear of punishment, it's the fear of the Lord. A very important difference. It's quite counterintuitive. The moralists have always argued that with mercy will come increased immorality. If you keep telling people they're forgiven, they won't take sin seriously. They say we must uphold just punishment so as to maintain morality, respect and good order. And so they argue for the stick behind and the carrot in front with the emphasis on the stick behind. That we may learn to fear, but all we're teaching people is to fear punishment, to fear being caught. See, this is what I take is what Professor Thomas Nagel's problem is. He doesn't understand for his rejection of God comes not from his rationality or his education, but from his fear, his fear of religion. In 2000, he wrote a book called The Last Word. In it, he wrote, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And they're made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. That, I may say, is a terribly smug, awful comment. Shock, horror. Some intelligent person believes in God. How could this be? That is the arrogance of the atheist, that one, isn't it? However, he goes on. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Here is a modern professor of philosophy at New York who is honest enough to admit his atheism is not based in fact, it's not based in reason, it's not based in science, it's based in his wishes, his desires, his hopes. It's based in his fears. He fears God. But he doesn't fear God of mercy and pardon and forgiveness. He doesn't want to be answerable to his creator. He wants to find meaning in the creation itself and when he can't find it's there, he concludes, well, it must be absurd and meaningless. He won't go back to his first assumption and say, well, maybe there is God after all. Uh, Professor Nagel's not rude like Mr Dawkins and Mr Hitchens. His sense of intellectual superiority is seen in the unease he has with intelligent people being religious believers, that smug superiority of atheism. But he's not putting us down all the time if you read his writings. But the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom he knows nothing of because it comes from the forgiveness of God found in the cross to which he does not look. It doesn't come from the fear of judgment or losing control of your life, which is what he is actually fearing. But before we think further on these great truths, let's note the rest of the psalm. For the theology of verses 3 and 4 controls verses 5 and 6. For example, there's two results I'll draw your attention to. The first one is the personal result of verses 5 and 6. 
The psalmist is personal. He's crying out of the depths and he's looking to the Lord for mercy. So now with the theology of verses 3 and 4 in place, he exhorts himself to wait. To wait for the Lord and for his word. To wait for salvation to come. To wait and to go on waiting. Like, like the watchman waiting for the morning. He feels it will never come, but it will come. It comes with a certainty. And so he, he keeps looking for the dawn to come in. Now, I've never been a watchman, but I have been a parent, and the nights have been very, very long sometimes. The years as a parent go very, very quickly, but the nights can seem to last forever. And waiting for the dawn to come with a sick child is one of the longest experiences of life that I've ever had. You watch for it all the time. You know it will come, you just don't seem to see it coming anymore. And so we wait on the Lord. We wait for mercy to come. We wait for that word of pardon as Israel waited that the word that became flesh and died for our sin, that that word of the gospel that declares justification to us. They waited from the time of Abraham all the way until the Lord Jesus turned, came. And so we wait. But the second result is corporate. It's the preaching of verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The news is not for the psalmist only. Israel too is sinful and under judgment. And so Israel also needs to hear the message of verses 3 and 4. For with the Lord is plentiful redemption. With the Lord there is steadfast love. And so the challenge for Israel is to wait in hope, to hope in the Lord, the one with whom there's plentiful redemption. Like the dawn, its certainty is the knowledge that he will redeem Israel. And so let's turn back then to the theology of this psalm. For it's the theology of the Bible as a whole. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we read of Solomon dedicating the temple, the place where God would dwell with man. The place of the judgment of God on sin, where no one could go in without mediators, priests, go-between people, and no one could go in without sacrifices, death of animals in your place. The all-welcome mat was never out the front of the temple. Rather, out the front of the temple was the sign, all trespassers will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. You can't come into the temple of God as a trespasser without punishment. For if the Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one can stand in the temple of God. So Solomon prays. Come with me to page 343. 343 in our Bibles. There we read of Solomon's dedication prayer in 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8, and I'm picking up, it's a long prayer, but I'm picking it up from verse 37. 1 Kings 8 and verse 37, where he prays, If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the afflictions of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then 
here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. The temple was to be the place where God would extend mercy and pardon and forgiveness. When they're in trouble, when they're under judgment, let them pray to you towards the temple and bring them forgiveness, pardon, mercy. Because in the coming of forgiveness, pardon and mercy is the fear of the Lord. That's when you're no longer fearing the surf that's drowning you, but the God who rules over the surf. You're no longer fearing the Assyrians who are besieging you. You fear the Lord who rescues you. You no longer fear the disease that's killing you. You, you fear the Lord who has healed you. It's in the mercy and pardon of God comes the fear of the Lord. In the New Testament, it's the same. You come across to 1 Corinthians, page 1136, 1136, 1136. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, that's the end of chapter 1. So it's picking up verse 26 following. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, page 1136. For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see verse 30, Jesus is our wisdom and where do our wisdom be found? Why? In his righteousness, in his holiness, in our redemption. The person who thinks he is something knows nothing. The person who knows that before God he is nothing knows something. It's counterintuitive but it's in the mercy and forgiveness and pardon of God, it's in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that we learn the fear of the Lord, not just the fear of our punishments. So let me spell it out to you under four headings. Firstly, our iniquities, they're on the outline there. See, if you've not yet come to understand your iniquity, if you, hadn't, you have no chance of understanding God. Universal sinfulness is a distinctive Christian teaching which is demonstrably true. It's everybody's problem, but whereas on most interested subjects we're very interested in ourselves, on this issue... We're very interested in everybody else's sinfulness. The newspaper is full of everybody else's sinfulness. Uh, aren't they wicked? Aren't they evil? Aren't they immoral, unethical? I would never do a thing like that. But just forget everybody else for a moment. Concentrate on yourself, one of your favourite topics. But concentrate on yourself in the light of truth. 
Step one is to understand your own guilt. Step one is our verse three, to recognise that you couldn't stand before God. Secondly, the Lord's judgment. You see, he's the righteous one who knows the secrets of all our hearts. And if he cares to pay attention to our sins, we will not be able to stand in his judgment. In fact, we can't stand in his presence. The temple was a place of continuous executions. The killing and sacrifices of animals were a continuous reminder of Israel's guilt and of God's just demands. The cathedral is, in this sense, nothing like the temple. We haven't killed an animal in here for years, except the occasional rat, and we generally miss them as well. We don't kill animals here. But if you went into the temple of Jerusalem, the stench of death, the stench of the barbecues, the stench of, of the entrails, the, that would be the normal air of the cathedral. The place smelt of death, for that's what was practised in the cathedral. For us, it's the cross. That is the eternal demonstration of the justice of God, the righteous anger of God. Don't water down your own sin. Don't water down God's justice and his just requirements. But the third point helps you cope with the first two. See, the third one is the Lord's characteristic forgiveness. He is just and true and righteous, but he's also abundantly forgiving, showing mercy to a thousand generations. For while the temple was the place of justice, it was also the place of mercy. While the sacrifice showed God's justice on sin, the sacrifice also brought forgiveness to the sinner. The cross is the place where the love of God flows down to us in mercy and forgiveness that we can bring all our sins, all our iniquities and lay them at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay them at the feet of his cross. All our gossiping and lying and slander and careless words, all our hateful, covetous ideas and dreams, our self-centeredness, our adulteries, our murders, we can bring them all to the cross for washing and cleansing because the Lord, characteristically, is loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And fourthly, notice the result of forgiveness. The result is the fear of the Lord. It's in being forgiven by his son's death that we finally learn to fear God properly. Not to fear being caught, not to fear being guilty, but the fear of God, who is so righteous and just, but is even more merciful and kind, whose wrath is expressed in such amazing love. Fear of punishment leads me away from truth of my sinfulness, away from dealing with the offended party, away from God. Fear of punishment does very little good for me. Receiving the mercy of God leads me into his presence 
and when I meet him, I rightly fear him. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is the basis of wisdom. That's the first step. Our real problem, you see, with God is not intellectual. Our real problem is that God is moral and relational and we are guilty and cannot take, face the judge. And because we cannot face the judge, we, we make a run for it thinking we won't get caught or thinking we don't need him or that we're not really guilty or he didn't notice or it will never catch up with us. But when the moral issue is resolved in the mercy of God, in our confession of sin and our forgiveness through the sacrificial death of Jesus, then we don't run away from God. We now turn to him. We meet the Lord. We meet him and find him in Jesus and his cross, in the very wisdom of God, which is the righteousness he gives to us, the holiness with which he sets us apart and our redemption. See, it's not clever people who know God but forgiven people who know God. Isn't this a lovely passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 1? Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you of noble birth. That's us, folks. That includes us. That, that you might be very noble birth and you might be very wise according to the world's standards. You, but for the rest of us, it's us. God doesn't call the high-powered, clever, able, noble birth people. He calls the little people which gives us all a chance because the basis of getting into the kingdom is our littleness, not our greatness. The basis of getting in is the mercy and forgiveness of God, not our achievements and our abilities. So we have nothing to boast of except in the Lord. And so the activity of these forgiven people is the same as the psalmist. We wait in hope for the Lord to return, looking forward to him with the eagerness of the watchman waiting for the dawn, preaching to others and to ourselves to keep hoping in the Lord, where the Lord is forgiveness and mercy. One of the earliest groups of Christians were the Thessalonian Christians, and Paul holds them up as models of conversion. And this is their conversion. He says it this way at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Once I know Jesus' delivery from the wrath to come, I wait in hope for his return. I now fear the Lord as my sovereign loving Father. I no longer fear the wrath, the punishment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for every good gift you give to us, but above all, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for that great expression of your justice and your mercy. And we pray that each one of us here might know our sinfulness, understand your just demands upon us, and look with eager longing to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has paid for us and will return not to bring us condemnation but to rescue us from the wrath that is to come and we ask it in Jesus name Amen